broadcasting live from Wilkinsburg. We're going to continue in our Theology Untangled series. I'm really excited to dive into the topic tonight. What is the role of headship in submission? And before we start, um, I don't know if you can hear it on the live stream, but the wind is blowing pretty hard outside right now. And we can hear it kind of whistling back and forth by the windows. And it reminds me of what I'm hoping to do and what I'm hoping this sermon accomplishes. And also something that as I was talking with uh, Pete, I'm going to put him on blast. I was talking with Pete, one of our elders, other elders this week, and he was just explaining how he has a desire for this time while we're in this sort of strange season of the virus going around, that this time would not be a time where we just look back on it as like, oh, we got through that. Like we, we just kind of survived it. But really as a church, that we would use this unplanned for and un you know, unforeseen season to really thrive as a church. And I I have thought about that multiple times and I've come back to it. I'm like, yes, like let's not in this season just sort of sit back and try to get through things. But as the wind is blowing, it's reminding me of how the Bible says we don't really know the action that the Holy Spirit is doing, but we see the effects of it. And I'm hoping that this message tonight encourages us in that direction so that this is not just something that we use to take our minds off what's going on or something that we turn on like Netflix to distract ourselves. But my prayer tonight is that we really do, uh, with this message in our GCCs, as we call and check up on each other, that we actually develop new rhythms and get new ground and get more maturity as we're going through the unforeseen challenges we're facing now. So that's my general hope, general prayer for you as we go through this season and specifically with this message tonight. As Chris was saying, Pastor Chris, the message tonight is on headship and submission. Uh, Specifically, what do those terms mean in the church, and what do they mean in marriage between men and women, headship and submission? So the Bible says in Ephesians 5, there we go, Ephesians 5, 23 through 24, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So how do we define the husband's the head of the wife and the wife should submit to the husband? That's what we mean when we say headship and submission. Uh, I'll have to admit that aside from the um, virus and the changes that have come with that, preparing for this message alone has been a a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, We get resources from an organization called Nine Marks. They send us theological journals on topics that are challenging, that are facing the church. And this was the cover of the most recent Nine Marks Journal. If you can see it on the screen in the live stream, the title of the most recent Nine Marks Journal is Complementarianism, subtitle, A Moment of Reckoning. And there's two people facing each other with a big cloud that covers both of their heads. So the terms headship and submission are smaller topics within the broader umbrella umbrella topic of complementarian theology. And I feel like that cover is fitting and that subtitle is fitting because anytime we talk about complementarian theology versus egalitarian theology or anytime we talk about manhood and womanhood or gender roles or the specific terms we're going to talk about tonight, headship and submission, I feel like there's a bit of a fog that just comes over the conversation. And I think that fog exists because we have so many presuppositions about each one of those terms that I just mentioned. And those presuppositions could come from many places, then they could, they could cloud our judgment. 
So we could have presuppositions. What I mean by that is just things that we already think about a term before we even mention it or try to define it. We could have presuppositions about how we define manhood and womanhood. We can have presuppositions about uh, headship and submission, what those terms mean. What also may be clouding our judgment is if the only examples we've seen our entire life of someone who's a leader or someone who has authority is abuse, then that could cloud our judgment. Or if the only time we've heard about submission in our life was in the context of someone being exploited or taken advantage of, that could also cloud our judgment. We're also all, uh, for better or for worse, influenced by our family, our parents, our upbringing, the just natural things we hear or think when we hear terms like manhood and womanhood or leader or servant or submissive. All of those things can cloud our judgment. So a lot of this conversation around headship and submission, whether we realize it or not, is intuitive. What I mean by intuitive is we don't always operate off concrete definitions when we're talking about them. We sort of just do what we suspect we should do based off the evidence that's put in front of us. And that can be good and that can be bad. I remember one time I was having dinner with some friends and the waitress came by and she asked me, she said, do you want some soup? And I said, yeah, I like soup. Of course I like some soup. And I said, what's the soup of the day? And she said, it's gazpacho. Now, I know most of you aren't like me. When a waiter or a waitress says something and you don't know what it is, you ask and you clarify before you say you want that thing. I didn't do that, and I should repent for my pride, but I didn't. And so I was like, yeah, gazpacho. That sounds great. I had no clue what gazpacho was. And so she brings out the soup, and she puts it in front of me, and I eat it like I would any other soup because it looked like any other soup. It was liquidy. It had a bowl, it had a spoon, it had a little crustini or something like that in the middle. So I took my spoon, I scooped my gazpacho, and like any other soup I've ever eaten in my life, I blew on it twice and I put it in my mouth. Now some of you understand the punchline of that joke, right? Gazpacho is a cold soup, it's like applesauce. So I'm sitting there like blowing on this soup that is, is cold and people are like probably looking at me like I'm crazy. So intuitions can be good and they can be bad, right? They can lead us into error if we just go off the natural understandings of what we have for things. And that's what I want us to do tonight is try to set aside our, our, our intuitions and try to read the Bible with fresh eyes so we can respond to it appropriately. To do that, what we need to do is actually start from the beginning. We need to start in Genesis like we have for a lot of these message, messages. And we're going to look at uh, sort of the... the background or the origin story of where these terms come from. Then we'll look in the New Testament and see explicitly in that Ephesians passage what headship and submission meant contextually then, and then we'll try to apply biblically and culturally today how we can obey or honor the term, the terms headship and submission. And we'll look at things that are actual good biblical applications of that and things that actually might just be more a result of our intentions or our intuitions than they are actual biblical truth. So like we have with many, series, uh, many sermons in this Theology Untangled series, we're going to start from the beginning. And I'm not going to read in depth each one of these verses. I think it's actually, we were talking pretty fitting that every one of the, almost every one of the sermons we've gone through in this series has started in Genesis 1 and 2. So I'm going to summarize just some key points from each one of these passages as we go through. This is starting in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 the uh, declaration of mankind and womankind. So when we start from the beginning, 
before we see or hear anything about Adam and Eve, the ones who we know are the first uh, man and woman, we hear a declaration about the nature of men and women in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So God creates in his image or in the Imago Dei, male and female. And they are unique from all of creation and that they distinctly bear God's image. So the meaning then of men and women is tied back to their divine nature. Everything else in creation doesn't have the distinction that men and women share of being created in the image of God. So before we get too far, foundationally, as we try to define manhood and womanhood, the foundational definition of biblical manhood is the image of God. It's not whether you can fix things or whether you can do a lot of push-ups or whether you're married or if you have a beard. Foundationally, biblical manhood is based in the image of God. Similarly, biblical womanhood at its foundation is based in the image of God. Not whether like, not you like the color pink or if you're married or if you can cook a certain way. The foundation of biblical manhood and womanhood is the Imago Dei, that we're made in God's image distinct from all creation. So the value of manhood and womanhood is not tied back to things that traditionally a culture says they can or could not do. It's tied back to their inherent worth as being created in God's image. So in addition to being image bearers, in Genesis 1, before we get Adam and Eve, God gives what we call a creation mandate. This is Genesis 1, 28 through 31. He says, to the man and to the woman, to mankind and womankind, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it. So, so far, so good. Men and women are created in God's image. They're given this charge by God to fill the earth and subdue it, to cultivate it. That word subdue in verse 28 means to make full use. So men and women were designed to rule over creation, to make full use of all the good resources that God put into it originally. And then when we get to Genesis 2, we get more concrete ideas of what God had in mind when he determined or defined man and woman. This is where we get Adam, the Lord God formed from the dust a man, or the Hebrew Adam, Genesis 2, 7. So now we get actual concrete beings. God forms Adam in Genesis 2, 7, and then in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, God gives Adam a command and a restriction, right? He puts him in the garden, and he says, I want you to look after it, cultivate it, and also don't eat from this tree, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything so far that God has been saying about creation is good. This is good. This is good. There's the, the night, there's the day, there's the land, there's the sea, there's all the animals and birds. Everything God's saying is good, but then we arrive at the one point and the one thing that God says is not good. You can probably finish the sentence if you're watching on the live stream, right? It's not good that the man is alone. So then we get in Genesis 2.20 through 22, God forms from Adam's rib the helpmeet or the helper suitable for him. That's where we get the woman. So they're then joined together in one flesh, and this is where we get our idea of marriage. And I will read this part of the passage. Genesis 2, 23 through 25. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. 
So Adam and Eve are married in the garden, enjoying all the goodness of God's creation, feeling no shame. And then we know what happens in Genesis 3. Sin enters the world. But before we get there, I want to make a few observations and make sure that we're talking in the same language or we're not going off any intuitive understandings of anything. The first, and I've said this multiple times, both men and women bear God's image. The man was created first in the creation account, as we just read, Adam. And then the woman, Eve, was taken from Adam's rib to show their common equality and their common humanity. The woman is described as the helpmeet, or some of your translations might say, the helper suitable. And that word in Hebrew is ezer. That's typically used, and a lot of times used in the Old Testament, to describe God being the ezer, the help, to his people. So the English, while it says helper suitable, uh, I think sometimes a more helpful way to think about that is the necessary help. Because remember, in Genesis 1, God had the idea of his image being in both men and women. So when Adam's alone, he has no helper suitable. He has no necessary help to fully bear God's image and fully subdue creation and make full use of it as they were created to. So the woman is formed not as subservient, but as the necessary help to bear God's image in creation. So now, after we've laid down those foundational ideas, we'll talk about the curse, right? Genesis 3. So the serpent deceives Eve. Adam is standing right there. And God calls out to Adam. And when he calls out to Adam, he then gives him a series of curses that are going to be the general disposition of humanity going forward because they chose to rebel against God. And we're not going to read all of them. We're actually just going to focus on one. And that one we're going to focus on is Genesis 3.16. Specifically, we're going to examine this curse that God gives to Eve. Your desire will will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The words desire and rule and Genesis 3.16 are important to understanding what this curse means. They're the same words that are used in Genesis 4.7 when God says to Cain, sins, uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire, same word, is contrary to you, but you must rule, same word, over it. So desire and rule in this fallen world, in this cursed context, can give us some idea about the general disposition of men and women post-fall. Men and women in marriage. Women will have a desire for men. They'll desire to be with them, but that desire is now corrupted in a sinful sense because sin is into the world. So the desire could be to break away from or to usurp or to be independent from men. And men will rule harshly over women as if women are the problem and not sin, just like Cain is supposed to rule over sin. But we see specifically in Genesis 3.12, Adam goes right to it. He displays it right there in Genesis 3. He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So instead of being one flesh, instead of subduing creation together, Adam is ruling over his wife. He's blaming her. He's shifting things to her that actually should be his responsibility. This is a vicious cycle. The woman has a desire to be with the man, but that desire is corrupted by sin because the man doesn't rule appropriately. He doesn't exercise his headship appropriately. So the woman desires to break away from or to be independent from or to usurp the authority of the man. It's a vicious cycle. 
So some observations we can make from the fallen condition. The first is that both Adam and Eve play a role in original sin. And I think this is important to point out because, yes, the woman was deceived, especially if you read passages like 1 Timothy 2.14, that Eve was deceived. That is not a proof text for misogyny or sexism. If you read in 1 Corinthians, the biblical understanding of sin is that, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. That man in the beginning of the verse is Adam. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So Genesis is not existing to place blame on women as if they are the lesser of the two beings that God created or the lesser of the two genders. Both Adam and Eve play a role in the fall. The second is that because of sin, relationships between men and women, specifically in marriage, will bear the general curse of men exploiting or ruling harshly over women, just like we saw Adam do with Eve to exploit her, to blame his sin on her, and women desiring to break away from or be independent from men. An emphasis here is I'll say this is a general curse, and we can't use this to say that women will always want to be independent or break away from men, or men will always rule harshly over women, because if you have a man, uh, a son specifically, who's disrespected to his mother, he's disrespecting a biblical authority figure in his life. If you have a woman who's a deacon or a leader in a company and she's mean to the people who report to her, she's ruling harshly over them. So these are general observations. They're not binaries. But at the same time, if we look at the patterns of how men and women relate biblically, and I think if we look at our cultural patterns today between men and women, we'll still see the prevalence of this general curse. Before we go there, And before we sort of examine the new covenant implications of this, I want to take a pause and say that there's good news. There's good news that the deception that Satan brought into the garden when he deceived Eve, when Adam didn't exercise his headship and authority appropriately, when sin entered the world and there was the curse we read in Genesis 3.16 and a whole other list of curses in Genesis chapter 3, those are being done away with. From the beginning... God said he would send his Messiah, his anointed one, to crush the head of the serpent. And when the serpent's head is crushed, when Jesus rose, when he died for our sin and he rose and resurrected, he's inaugurating a kingdom where people who are Jesus's disciples will now live the way we were created to live in the garden. That's men, that's women, children, married, single, or otherwise, Now we bear our primary responsibility as Jesus' disciples, living the way we were intended to live in the garden. So when Jesus rose and inaugurated his kingdom, he displayed perfectly during his life what everything we wanted in the garden was supposed to look like. So terms like headship and submission, if we want to define them appropriately, we have to realize that those terms are hidden in Jesus. They get their root, their meaning, their definition their full clarity in Jesus. So the background is that we, men and women, we both fell. Adam was our representative, and he fell. He messed up, as we just read in 1 Corinthians. That we're a fallen, we're a fallen race of people. When I say race, I mean the human race. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. But in Christ, we're being redeemed as his disciples to live as we were intended to live in the garden 
not exclusively, but particularly how we were intended to relate to each other as men and women. So now, when we read Paul's words in Ephesians 5, which we're going to go to here, we can have a little bit of context, right? That there was a created design intended for men and women. That design was corrupted by sin. That design is perfected and shown perfectly in Jesus. And now, because the wrath of God for our sin has been taken away, we can be reconciled to God through Christ. We have to look to Jesus to see how we can embody and live out the way we were intended to live in the garden. So let's look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so background context. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 at a real high level, Paul is explaining the gospel, that good news that I was just talking about, how we're reconciled to God in Christ, how the curse of sin has now been taken away from us, and now those who repent and trust in Jesus can have peace, harmony, and reconciliation with God through Christ. As we get into chapters 4 and 5, Paul talks about the horizontal implications of the vertical reconciliation that Jesus made between us and God. So now horizontally, how does that play out between people who are now living with each other? Men and women, husbands and wives, co-members of the same church. How do we live out horizontally the peace that Jesus bought for us with God? And in the end of 5, in verse 21, That's where we first see this word submission, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some translations put a heading break. I think this one does. We don't have it on the screen. I think it's the ESV. Puts a heading break between 21 and 22. And then they break out into the Christian household sections, into wives and husbands. And later, we'll read commands to uh, children as well as bond servants if we get into chapter 6. And that's actually a really important pattern that we should notice as we look at Ephesians 5. The delineation it makes as the exhortations are given, starting with the husband, then to the wife, then to the children, then to the bondservant in chapter uh, 6. The reason I say that's important is because that line of thinking, that pattern, was most likely familiar to the original readers. Paul is laying out his exhortations in what Greco-Roman culture understood as household codes. 
Household codes are simply how the culture at that time understood who held power in the house. So Paul follows their argumentation. Husband, wife, children, bondservant. So the fundamental question we have to ask when we try to look at a term like headship and submission is, is Paul using these household codes to communicate something that's just specifically for that culture? because he's using terminology in an order that they're familiar with? Or is Paul making statements about husbands and wives that are cross-cultural, that apply to the nature of men and women? Household codes are almost like today when someone says, and this is a bit of a dated term, I realize it, but if someone says the man wears the pants in the relationship, that's a means of understanding who holds the power, who makes the decisions. That's sort of like how household household codes would work. So again, this is an important question. Is this something that's just specific for that culture, or is it cross-cultural? Does it apply to all men, all women, at all times? And we do have verses in the New Testament that are specific to the culture. I believe it was in Pastor Chris's sermon where he talked about uh, uh, forbidding women from braided hair, right? That was to uh, demonstrate a cultural application of women not flaunting their wealth in church. So today, we don't forbid women from braiding their hair, but we obey the broader principle of not having women or men, for that matter, flaunt their wealth when they come to church. Same thing when Ephesians talks about greeting each other with a holy kiss. We don't take that literally. We don't greet each other with a kiss. We shake hands. Well, we used to shake hands. We fist bump or bow from six feet away right now. But we do something, right? So it's the same thing. We don't, we don't take the literal application of what it's done because culturally at that time, you kissed to show honor. So as Paul doing something that's just specific to that culture, or is he speaking cross-culturally? Before I answer that question, I want to address another question, something that may be clouding our judgment, something that may be intuitive to us. And that question is this. When you hear the term head, or another way to say head could be leader, when you hear the term authority, what do you think of? Do you think of a boss, maybe a coach, a powerful CEO, someone who has a lot of money, who makes a lot of decisions, who can snap their fingers and things will happen that impact millions of people, right? Someone who's got power. My concern is that when we hear those terms like head or leader or authority, we import our modern reactions to those terms onto what the Bible says, and we don't define them the way that Jesus defined them. So in Matthew 20, the disciples come to Jesus with a desire for authority, a desire for leadership, a desire for position. You could say a desire for headship. And Jesus answers that question by giving us a definition of how any Christian should use authority or headship or power that's granted to them by God. This is Jesus in Matthew 20. Jesus called to them and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life up as a ransom for many. So those who follow Jesus must recognize that any position of authority, in that text, it says whoever whoever is first, just like Adam was created first, is a representative head. Who's ever first, whoever has a position of leadership or authority or anything granted to them by God must use it to serve. 
as Jesus perfectly did when he laid down his life for us. So now let's look back at the question. Was Paul's reference to headship a culturally bound term that's specific just because of the household codes that existed at the time then? Or is it something that's relevant for us today that we should still try to obey in our modern cultural context? While we can recognize that there's a potential pattern of cultural uh, household codes there as the verses are written, we must also recognize where Paul roots his definition and his argument. After exhorting the husbands, Paul roots his argument in quotes back from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So although the term headship was specific, or, or all the, although the household codes Paul was following there could have been specific for that day, the term headship has to have some cross-cultural application because of its root in creation. And at its very least, headship is a reference to Adam being first, being created first, as we read in the creation account. So how does that apply today? First for husbands, and I say husbands and not men, but first for husbands, husbands should exercise headship by laying down their lives in loving service to their wife, just like Jesus did for the church. Doing the opposite of what Adam did in the garden where things went wrong, and he blamed his wife. He ruled over her. He exploited her. He blamed his issues on her. For wives, submission is a call to reclaim their role in the garden as necessary help to the husband. And just like headship, we need to manage our intuitive understanding of a word like submission. When we hear submission, a lot of times, I know I think of someone being exploited. If I'm submitting to someone, they're going to take advantage of me. They're going to exploit me. And a friend of mine, I was talking about, her, uh, about this topic, submission, uh, with her. She's a black woman. She was saying that she couldn't think of any time, any example of the term submission being used in the context of black women in a positive context. She said she could only think of it in, you know, you see slave movies and black women are being exploited, or you see uh, movies today where there's sort of the big mama figure who does everything for everybody but has nothing left for herself. So for her, her definitions of what submission was were rooted in what the culture said it looked like. And for black women, that's not a positive picture, right? But just like the term headship, we need to square our knee-jerk reactions of submission with how Jesus defines or embodies the term. So for submission... We need to keep in mind that Jesus was equal with God, but he didn't count that equality with God as something to be grasped. He let it go. He gave it up. That's Philippians 2. So Jesus submitted to God when he came to earth, not because he was less than God. That would blow up a lot of things theologically for us. Not because he was less than God, but because he was willing. These are Jesus' words in John 10:18. I missed that one. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So in this context for wives, submission is not a call or an endorsement of women being subservient to men. Submission is to, just like Jesus, come as the necessary help 
for men in the context of marriage. Just like Jesus came as our necessary help, not because he was less than God, but because he was willing. So submission in marriage from women should always be about willingness and not about competency or being subservient to men. And lastly, on the term submission, uh, this is a term that's not used exclusively towards women in the Bible. We see in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, men and women. We're called in the context of Hebrews 13, 17 to submit to qualified elders within the local church. And as I'm sure we're all learning now, Romans 13, men and women have to submit to the government. So submission is not a declaration that women are subservient to or less than men. Submission is a call for women to be the necessary help of men, not because they're less than men, but because they're willing. Just like Jesus was not less than God, but he came because he was willing. Now, we're going to go a little bit further here and examine a little more of some of the intuitive understandings that we may have of these terms. But first, before we do that with our last 10 minutes here, I'd be remiss if I didn't point you back to a sermon that Pastor Chris preached on this passage, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, February 17th. I'll flash it up at the end, so don't feel like you have to write it down now. But he goes through and gives the real deep, practical, marital implications of everything these verses say. And today we're really just kind of zeroing in on the headship and submission aspect of it. So that's a, a resource for you for the future if you want to go back and listen to the practical sort of marital implications for practically how men and women who are married should obey this or think about it. I want to talk, like I said, more about those terms, headship and submission. Because again, intuitively, this passage may sound archaic, especially for women, and we'll deal with that. But I want to first deal with, at the time it was written, it's most likely that this passage was offensive to the men. Remember the curse that we talked about in Genesis 3, that men would rule harshly over women. That was certainly the case in the time that this was written. Women were often seen as property, weren't often educated, and could be easily divorced, a norm that Jesus challenged and pushed back against when he said the only time you can divorce your wife is for sexual immorality. That law in the Old Testament was permitted because your hearts were hard and you just divorced women because you thought you were better than them and they were your property and you could just let them go for anything. Jesus pushed back against that norm. So men in Paul's day would likely be shocked at the idea that they should love their wives as if they're their own body and they should feed their wives and care for their wives like they would their own body. Now, where do you think Paul's mind is when he's talking about that? Back in Genesis 2. Where do we get that idea from the, the man being formed from the ground and God forming Eve out of the side of Adam? So the common equality and humanity of women that Paul is advocating for here is also rooted back in the idea of men and women being created in the image of God and women being formed from the same substance that God formed man from. So for the original readers, Paul is pointing them back to Jesus, or pointing them back to Genesis, but he's also pushing them towards Jesus, because headship and submission are hidden in or defined by Jesus. So any Christian husband claiming to want to be the head or exercise headship should do it the way that Jesus did, by laying down his life for his wife. And as much as we may want to look down our nose at Scripture when it refers to men as the head, again, keep in mind, we're still dealing with a curse. Women aren't seen as property today, and that's a good thing, 
But men ruling over women certainly manifests itself in many modern ways. It's unfortunate, but if someone's being abused in a relationship, who's most likely doing the abuse? The man. If someone's being assaulted sexually or physically or verbally, who's most likely doing the assaulting? The man. In perhaps our progressive modern culture, one of the more relevant examples of men ruling over women today is the Me Too movement. Men who would say that they're far advanced beyond the archaic norms of the Bible because we've got our uh, modern progressive ideals and we've got all our technology, but yet still the curse plays itself out, even in a place as progressive as Hollywood and the, the emergence of that Me Too movement that came because men were ruling over women, exploiting them, sexually assaulting them. It's unfortunate. It's sin, and we should grieve it. So in light of that curse, then, the exhortation for men to be ahead still applies. But again, not ahead or not a leader or not exercise authority the way the world defines it. But husbands today, just like husbands in Paul's day, shouldn't use any physical, societal, or financial power to rule over women. Husbands today should use whatever advantage they have to serve women, to lay down their lives for women as Christ laid down his life for us. Now, for the original uh, female or woman readers of the day, it's likely that this passage was liberating. Liberating because their worth is no longer tied up in what men think about them, the men who could so easily divorce them and send them away. But now their worth is tied up in what Christ thinks about them and how Christ defines submission. So thus, submitting to their husbands, it says, as they would to Christ, gives Jesus the ultimate authority of what women can and should be. Not Greco-Roman culture, not American 2020 culture, but Jesus gives the definition of what biblical womanhood can and should be because headship and submission are both hidden in or defined by Jesus. So what does that mean in the context of marriage? In the context of marriage, it's the husband's job to help the wife be all she can be in Christ. That may mean that the wife is busy looking after the home like we see in Titus 2, it may mean that she's selling real estate and not doing business like the Proverbs 31 woman. It also might mean Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila doing ministry together. The husband's job is to know his wife, to love her as if he, she is his own body, and to have her be all she can be in Christ. And a lot of that is dependent on her capacity, her gifting, the things that a husband, a good husband, who loves his wife, who knows his wife like he does his own body, can know and can pull out of her and can see her be all she is in Christ. So if we set our intuitions aside and pull out all the things that maybe are our knee-jerk reactions to manhood and womanhood or headship, submission, what I think, what I hope we'll see here is a virtuous cycle forming, the opposite of the vicious cycle we saw in Genesis 3. A husband is willing to lay down his life for his wife, just like Christ laid down his life for the church. A wife is willing to be the necessary help for her husband, just like Christ came as our necessary help, not because he was less than us, not because he was less than God, but because he was willing. So no one now is saying, like Genesis 3, Adam blaming Eve. Basically, this is your fault, right? No one's saying, I'm in charge. No one's demanding power. No one's exploiting or blaming things on other people. But it's a virtuous cycle. A man lays down his life. A woman comes as the necessary help. And the curse we see in Genesis 3 is beginning to be done away with. So anytime we take those terms, headship, 
or submission and move them outside of being defined by Jesus is the moment we go back to Genesis 3, back to the curse, back to women wanting to break away from men, back to men ruling harshly over women. So headship and submission must be hidden in Jesus for them to be obeyed properly. Kathy Keller has a really good quote. Kathy Keller is, uh, wrote a really good chapter, which I'll talk about here, a part of a book, which I'll talk about here in the, at the end. Kathy Keller says, in marriage, both men and women get to play the Jesus role. I think that pretty much sums it up. So if I were to try to give a sort of uh, final definition in a couple sentences, what is biblical headship? Or what does the Bible mean when it says the husband is the head of the wife? I would say something like this. Rooted in creation, fall, and redemption, headship is God's call for husbands to sacrificially lay down their lives for their wives as Christ laid down his life for the church. Headship is the antithesis of the historical pattern of men exploiting and blaming women dating back to Genesis 3. Christ is the head of the church, and his life is our model for headship. Same thing with uh, submission, kind of an academic or a couple-sentence definition for submission. Church members, men and women, should submit to qualified elders who model Christ-like servant leadership. Submission is God's call for wives to be the necessary help for their husbands in fulfilling the creation mandate. Submission is also the posture in which believers should have as we seek to edify each other in the context of the local church. That's Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the perfect uh, one picture, one snapshot example of headship and submission is the cross. Jesus says, if you want to see what leadership looks like, if you want to see what you should do with your authority, lay down your life for your friends. No greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And if we want to see what submission looks like, again, we can look to the cross. Jesus submitted to God, not because he was less than, but for the joy set before him, he was willing to submit and take the punishment our sin deserved. So headship and submission, perfectly, picture, uh, perfectly uh, seen in the cross. And those terms should be hidden, defined, and seen in Jesus. So um, I know that we're all kind of spread out right now. And normally, if you had questions or something, we could talk after service, but that's not available. There's also no book table in the back for you to be able to get resources for from. So I'll give you a few things that may be helpful if you want to dialogue, talk more, learn more about this topic. The first one is one I already mentioned. It's Pastor Chris's sermon from February 17th, 2019, where he breaks down everything that's in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, kind of the more practical aspects of what husbands and wives should do with those verses and gets outside of just talking about the headship and submission, which was my main focus today. Another book, this is a book I just read. It's really good. It just came out. It's called Worthy. And this book is about celebrating the value of women, specifically in the local church context. So a lot of what I talked about today was a little marital specific with defining headship and submission. But this book does a really good job of celebrating, that's the subtitle, celebrating the value of women and talks about how uh, all types of creative and really biblical ways that women can and should be encouraged to do ministry in the local church. Really good read. The other one I mentioned as well is The Meaning of Marriage. This is a good just general marriage book, but the specific place I'd point you with this one is the chapter Embracing the Other 
Kathy Keller, who's Tim Keller's wife, wrote that chapter and specifically uh, walked through what her journey was like and what their practical marital relationship looked like as she embraced uh, biblical submission and what that looked like practically for them. I think it's a really good read, and it's a chapter, so it's a short read. The whole book is good, but that chapter specifically gives us some really good definitions for submission. And the last one, this is like, I mentioned the term complementarianism in the beginning. This is a, uh, it's a little dark on the screen, but a really good resource to like, if you want to just understand where the term complementarianism comes from, how was it defined, what are all the original definitions and thoughts behind them. This book was co-written by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. I want to say it's probably 20 years old now. Um, It's a pretty old book, but it's, it's got the sort of original language of definition if you want to dive deep into how a lot of Christians think about uh, the broader term that I mentioned in the beginning, complementarianism. So those are all good resources if you want to do further investigation to this topic. And uh, I'll say that although we're spread out, if you have questions, we have the Facebook group open. And certainly through uh, just reaching out to one of us, we'd be happy to talk, pray, think more through this with you. And these are great resources. So if you want to read through it together, start a book club, or do something to, to get into it more, we would certainly encourage that. So I'll pray, and then we'll close out. Lord, thank you that you defined and showed us what love looks like on the cross, that you laid down your life for us, that you defined and showed us what love looks like, and that you submitted willingly to the Father and came and lived obediently. God, just as we're, we're desiring in this time of uncertainty to be faithful, would you take anything from this sermon, God, the words, the thoughts that it sparks in people's head, and just empower it by your spirit to allow people who are listening to this to be obedient to you, and not just for the sake of doing it to say we did it, but for the sake of realizing that you're beautiful, that you are the God to whom we owe our lives and our obedience to, not not out of coercion, but out of love. So would we joyfully see, hear, apply, and seek to obey anything that your spirit is oppressing upon us today in the context of the church and the community and in our local communities, God? Would we embody what we've learned, what we've read, what you've impressed upon us? And will we do it for, not for our own glory or even the glory of the the local eternal city church, but for Jesus' glory, for his kingdom that's been inaugurated, that's doing away with everything that went wrong in the garden? We thank you, Lord. We ask that this week, and we recognize that this week, that although we are a part, you are still here, our ever-present help available to us, to minister to us, and to allow us to walk not in fear, but in hope of what we have in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.